Guys, my new book, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital, just hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It's ranking extremely high on Kindle and Audible, and I want to thank you guys for grabbing it. If you haven't bought it yet, here's what James Y. said in an Amazon review on March 8th. He said, literally, a step-by-step blueprint for conquering the world and building your own empire. Five stars. It's a verified purchase. He goes on to say, if you like doing things the hard way, don't read this book. For everyone else who appreciates someone showing you what to do and why it works step-by-step so you can rinse and repeat and accomplish the same results, read this book now in all caps. He then says, pro tip, stock up on highlighters while you're adding this to your Amazon cart, you'll be using them. This book should be required reading for every entrepreneur, startup or founder, business person, and human. Seriously, Nathan is not a kind of class that cuts through all the bull crap, he used a different word, to show you what you need to do and how to do it. If success came with an instruction manual, this book would be it. We'll be stocking up and handing these out as Christmas gifts to all my friends and colleagues. If I could give this book a six-star review, I would. From James, James, thank you. All you that listen to the podcast, thank you so much. SaaS founders are loving the book. Go grab an audible version right now at capitalistbook.com. Go find mentors faster. He had some success with Sortable, selling it early on to a larger company, Rebellion, backed by a private equity firm, then worked in 2014 to spin that back out and really scale it. Now they've got a model, which is essentially a SaaS tonnage fee on a CPM basis and then a rev share basis as well. Um, they've got 300 customers right now growing 30 to 40% year over year, doing well north of 3 million bucks in revenue. Net revenue retention annually over 100% with this team of about 60 people between Waterloo and Toronto. Uh, less than six month payback period too, so healthy economics there. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Chris Reed. He's the founder and CEO of Sortable, a Waterloo region startup on a mission to empower publishers. With engineering background from the University of Waterloo, he's a serial entrepreneur on his fifth venture and has, and has led tech ventures in industries ranging from educational technology to the consumer web and B2B SaaS. He's a driving force behind Sortable, which was formerly SnapSort Media, which uses machine learning to help online publishers automate ad operations. Previously, a web publishing company, it was acquired in 2011 and bought back in 2014 to relaunch Sortable's current day business. We'll jump into it today. Chris, are you ready to take us to the top? I am. All right. So this is going to be fun. So it sounds like, I mean, did I get this right? You built an agency, you sold it, you didn't like what happened to it, so you bought it back, and now it's more pure play SaaS. Is that accurate? Uh, No. Give me the update. uh, Give me the accurate version. Yeah. So we we built out a publishing business that was uh, consumer-focused, sold it, and... Yeah, wasn't wasn't happy with um, the sort of the, the trajectory we were going on uh, post acquisition, and so bought it back and largely pivoted to a B two B focused, uh, yeah, SaaS company uh, trying to help publishers. So first company was publishing based. We learned a lot of lessons as a publisher, and then um, 
bought the company back and repivoted towards helping publishers. Okay, so there are a, for, let me let me break this down for a second. Number one, why did you stay with the company after the acquisition? Was there an earnout you had to? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's. I think with all acquisitions, there's some there's some type of uh, tie-in. You know, I think that there's like monetary tie-in, stock tie-in, and then also um, just me wanting to, you know, finish you know finish the job. Right? There's like a commitment. So a lot of reasons. And why did it take three years for you to realize your new home wasn't going to be a good fit and you should spin it back out? Why not do it immediately? or after a year? Uh, that's just that I would never do that. Right. I would never sell something and then not, not try and work, make it work for the, uh, for the acquirer. You know, sorry, Chris, I'm not accusing you of, of doing something unjust. What I'm saying is why did you need a three year cohort sample size, right. To understand it was never going to work. Right. Why not with that? If, if we go off your current logic, why not stay in, why didn't you try it for 10 years? Oh, cause it was, it, it was clear at, it wasn't clear initially that it wasn't going to work. It, it took some time and then it took some time to execute a buyout. Like I see uh, working with uh, private equity firms who have to, um, you know, wor- working with the, the money side is not necessarily easy, you know? So it's like, you can kind of break the time up into, uh, we continued to grow the company. It was going well. Um, then a period where it looked like, you know, it wasn't going to be what we thought it would be. And then a period of executing the buyout that, you know, those three things um, took time and that's, that's how you get to three years. So how much capital do you need to raise and round up from these private equity folks to take it back private? I mean, are oh, we no, talking like I, a million or a hundred million or. So I'm, I'm speaking primarily about negotiating with the PE firm who, who largely controlled us taking it back not us raising money from private oh, equity. Oh, you're talking about Rebellion directly. I'm, I'm talking about the, the PE firm that, that backed Rebellion. I see. Okay, Rebellion was the company that bought you guys in the first place. You had to kind of get on good terms with them first, negotiate the deal, and then you were able to spin it back out. Yeah, you have to negotiate both with the choir and with um, the PE firm who, who you know has a lot of say over what, what they do. Got it. So, Yep. Okay. Let's focus on the business. So what's the company do? And, and today again, how do you charge? How do you make money? So we charge publishers, um, in sort of two models, right? One model is sort of a SaaS style tonnage fee, um, which is on a CPM basis. And then the other, the other way we charge is on a rev share. Okay. Okay. So that's how we make money. Great. And is there one, uh, do one of those make up more like the majority of their revenue? So does 80% SaaS and 20% is rev share, something like that? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, ultimately it models it like SaaS because the way we make money is a function of the amount of advertising someone is doing. So that's, that's a pretty stable, you know, it's a pretty stable sort of input. So we, you know, the input is how many impressions, how many ads are we, are we managing for you? And then the output is we're either charging a fixed amount per ad or we're charging a rev share amount per ad. And the, we're primarily, um, primarily rev share focused that, um, but they, the two model really similarly, because at some point, you know, a CPM and a rev share are actually the same thing. They're, they're a, 
they're transacted on a per impression basis and, and they can actually back out the exact same way. So it's, it's really two sides of the same coin. In turn, you know, when you say model similar to a SaaS company, you know, people like SaaS because they like predictability, right? And so they look at things like churn to see is the bucket leaky or is it truly recurring revenue? So, so if I just ask you just to try to understand this in one metric, net revenue retention annually, are you guys above a hundred percent? Um, I mean, in aggregate, we, we try and look at it across a few cohorts, right? So that it's like, it makes sense. Um, and I would say yes, because there's, you know, normally in SaaS, you have a lot of upsell opportunity, right? And so that's, that's fairly typical. Um, with us, there is some variability because some publishers grow really quickly. And as they grow, that kind of looks like, um, like over 100% retention. But if a publisher shrinks, they don't. And so modeling out retention in our industry is like a little more complex because you do have that variability. You also have variability across quarters. So Q4 is a huge advertising season. So revenue goes up. So you don't really have retention going up. So we can look at revenue to retention. We can look at like, um, just like the number of publisher retention. We can look at what is that? We have to, What's number of publisher retention? Oh, it's, um, it's like 90. Yeah. So this doesn't factor in upsell, but it's like 95%, something like that. Again, I would, I would have to bring on my, my VP of customer success to give you. We won't go too deep there. I just want to understand, you know, a lot of times I'll have ad tech companies on and they'll call themselves SaaS and it's tied to ad spend. And Chris, I've never seen more lumpy P&Ls in my life. It's not SaaS. It's like super, super up and down. What I'm hearing you say is you have the basic ups and downs of spend related to like the holiday season in Q4. But generally over a, the course of a year, these the, you know your net revenue retention is over 100%, meaning revenue that you lose from publishers who are shrinking on a yearly basis is more than made up by, by folks that are spending more on you and having more success on you. So that's how you get north of 100%. Yeah, and to be, to be fair, most ad tech, like some ad tech companies are really SaaS based where they're charging, you know, a monthly fee for, for something, you know, like when Domo works with a publisher, is that, is that a SaaS based ad tech company? I mean, Domo is not an ad tech company, but they work with a lot of publishers. So they're selling the platform though. That's not a percentage of it. Like typically it's not a percentage of ad spend or a rev share. Right. Right. But, um, so, and we're a little different in that we're charging, uh, you know, we help publishers with their entire business, right? Whereas most, most ad tech companies are, I would say most exchanges, most people who transact on revenue are transacting on a piece of a publisher's revenue. So that, that creates a lot more variability. Not only is there variability in terms of the publisher's volumes, but there's variability in terms of how much of that volume you're able to capture. And so we don't have a lot of that variability. We don't, we lose the variability piece in terms of what volume of publishers transacting that we participate in. We are primarily helping them with all of their business, right? So they're, they're coming to us and saying, we want you to help us optimize our entire business. Um, and so it's a lot less fickle, um, than I would say typical points. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me let me try and summarize that just so we don't go down every potential little you know you know alleyway here. The average customer per year is paying you what? Uh, we don't disclose that. 
Uh, sorry, give me a range. I mean, are we talking, you know, a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, you know, 500 grand? Um, you know, there, there's an, there's a pretty, there's a pretty broad range. We work with very small publishers and we work with very large publishers and there, there's a huge range there. Just give me whatever range you're comfortable. I'm trying to get a general sense of if it's kind of S M B or enterprise or mid market, just give me a general range, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to get into ranges cause I think, I don't, I don't think that that's going to be, um, Chris, it is, sorry, it is meaningful, right? I've, uh, we, we've done about 3,000 3, of these interviews. It's one of the number one pieces of feedback we get from audience and folks that listen in is we don't know if this was a small, medium, or large, right? So, I mean, can you give me a general sense? Again, whatever range you're comfortable with. I understand you don't want to share exactly, but a general sense? Yeah, publishers could be anywhere from sort of tens of thousands of a year up to hundreds of thousands. Okay, and that's to you, not their ad spend. Correct. Got it. Okay, cool. And then put this on a timeline for me. So you spun it out, I think you said in 2014, is that right? Uh, yeah. And have yeah, you have you bootstrapped it since, since then or no, you raised? We, I have a few angels who um, work with me from the onset, but it's, it's from, uh, I would say if you're going to define it, it's bootstrapped. Okay. Well, so research team says, and I don't know if they pulled this from an SEC filing or wherever they pulled it, but that you'd raise about 1.4 million bucks. Is that accurate? Or was that pre your sale to rebellion? No, that's accurate. That's, that's, um, I think that's public knowledge. That's what we, what we raised. Okay. Well, yeah, that's why I wanted to ask and confirm it. So, so 1.4 million post the spin out. Yeah, that was raised sort of on the onset as seed capital, but also as capital to do the buyback. Yep. to do part of the buyback. So. Yep. Yep. Got it. Okay. And then, um, and then what are you guys in terms of team today? How many people? We're around 60, 60 and everyone based up there in Waterloo. Uh, we have an office in Toronto. Okay. Waterloo and Toronto. Anyone HQ or no, that's really split. Sorry. Ask the question. Again. Is there, is there a density around either one of those or no, it's pretty evenly split. Uh, most of the people are in Waterloo. Waterloo. Okay. And then, um, talk to me about scale. So how many customers are you working with now annually? A few hundred. A couple hundred. Okay, good. So it's very much, I mean, it sounds to me, I mean, uh, understandably, you're being a bit vague in terms of the ranges, but it sounds like you're you're very much kind of an enterprise sale. Are any are any of these folks, the 60, like an inside sales model, or you have a no-touch kind of onboarding process? Um, again, depends on the size, right? So like no-touch... Um, we don't, we don't really have a, a, a zero touch model. There's no like self-serve hundred percent, you know, hundred percent inbound without anybody, without any sales or account like CS touching them before they're, they're onboarded. Um, but there's a range of interaction pre-sale. So someone might come on board, you know, sort of like lead to from a lead to an onboarding in two weeks. And it might take someone else, you know, six months, six months, a little long, maybe three months um, to, to, to make sure that we are, um, you know, properly valuing their business and properly assessing what kind of setup is going to help them the most. And for big enterprise customers, there's a lot of work to do. Yep. And, and no matter which cohort you're onboarding, uh, when you look at, just from a financial perspective, how quickly you like to make your money back on acquisition. Are you optimizing for like a six month payback period, a 12 month payback or something even more aggressive in the 24 month range? 
Um, no, we're, we, we work on less than six months, less than six months. Okay. And is that, is that on a cash basis? Cause you make them make folks pay annually or no? It's on an accounting basis. We don't, we don't factor in, um, like our receivable timeframes into that calculation. Yeah. Okay. That's great. And then, um, in terms of growth, right? So, so what are you going at right now? Year over year. Um, I mean, these numbers, like, uh, these are always, I would say right now we're probably 30, 40%. Yep. 34. Yeah, what were we going to say about the numbers? I was going to say that like, um, I don't know. I know a lot of founders and, and the highline numbers are often do not describe, um, what's actually happening underneath. So, I'm, I'm just, I'm skeptical of the, uh, like the usefulness of the, the top line number, but yeah, around 30 to 40%. Well, the counter to that is a lot of people just come on on bullshit, right? Uh, and they're, they're just, it's fake numbers. And when you really drill down their their business is about to go bankrupt next month. Right. So, so, um, I think what you've done is valuable, which is, and this is what I tried to do on the show, which is you get the hard number and then you ask the questions to understand, wow, you've done a great job or you're not doing a great job. Like, what are you going to do better? Or what have you done really well to hit that? And uh, I found that to be very effective. So 30 to 40% year over year growth. Um, we can kind of back into a minimum here, right? I mean, you said 300 customers. You said minimum 10 grand per year. It sounds like you have some that are way larger than that. So if I just multiply that, I mean, that puts you at about 250 grand per month in monthly recurring revenue. And obviously, we can multiply by 12 to put that on an AR basis. But is, is that generally accurate about north of 3 million in AR? No, we're, we're much higher than that. And that's why it's like you have th- things are lumpy, right? Like I know really, really high flying startups that their, their quarter over quarter growth is negative. And then the next quarter is, you know, like, you know, they'll do like 40% growth in a quarter and then they'll do nothing. And then one year they'll do a hundred percent or 200%. The next year they'll like, it's just so all over the map that, um, me looking at my last 12 months and my next 12 months, there's so much variability, especially as like a small company. There's so, there's so much, um, there's so much potential variability that it's hard to pin a number down. That's, but you know, I, I understand why you need to. Well, yeah. And Chris, just to be clear, I mean, the reason SaaS gets valuations that are above say a media company is because of the predictability, right? I mean, the thought is if you know some of these things, you put them in a model and generally it creates predictability and then you can use that to raise capital or build your team, things like that. I understand you've got some variability in your business and everyone does, but um, it's helpful to understand how you're thinking about it. So appreciate that. Yeah. Um, And just to be clear too, on the ARR, um, I don't want to over-exaggerate. I'm just, I'm doing a minimum uh, because that's what you chose to gave me. So can I, you know, I assumed you're doing obviously significantly higher than that, which is great. Um, Any plans to raise capital in the near future or no? Uh. We don't need to. So why to would me, you? It's like, the reason why we would is because we want as a boots, like when you're bootstrapped, you're very efficient with what you do and you're very tactical. And so um, I think there's a lot of, that's a very healthy approach, but if you want to have a bigger war chest, then you, you can typically expand what you want to do. And so for us, that expansion would probably be, expanding the scope of, of product and of market penetration. So it would be like, um, it would be product marketing and sales. There, there might be some opportunity for acquisitions. Um, but typically, typically 
you know, uh, typically there's too many things that get in the way of, of, of the acquisitions that it's just not, it's not, it's not easy. It's not, it, there's not like an easy way to understand that, that it's easy to understand, like add this market, you know, like open up a sales office here, um, you know, add these sort of marketing tactics and the people that are going to execute those and the capital to run those tactics and, you know, build out a product team to do X and Y and Z. Like that's very, there's not like, it's not like a, you can't, there's no like yeah. perfect causality, so, so but like, yeah, it's more so causal. I understand you don't need the, sorry, I'm rushing you. We're, we're about out of time, but I understand you don't need the money, but if you did an ideal world raise capital, how much would you raise to go pursue some of these things? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, we, we can do a lot as a bootstrap company. We can do a lot with say 10 million bucks. Like that's for, for some companies, that's nothing. And for, I think for us, we are able to, you know, make that go five X further. Yep. And would you do what most people do in a series A or series B? You look at selling somewhere between maybe 10 and 30% of the company for that amount. Uh, no, we would, we're, we're not looking to do typical things. We, we will be giving less of the company away less than, than less than like, 10% like, like like 30% is typical right like it's like that's like the well not always read, just Chris just to be fair not always I mean uh, oh I know not always but if you're reading like what people are like expect to give 30 expect to give 25 like this is this is fairly common 10% I mean 10% would put us at a, at a hundred million dollar um like valuation right so I, to me, it's like. So, am I reading see, right? You'd say you want to, if you did raise and you don't need the capital, but if you did, you'd want to raise it at greater than a hundred million dollar valuation. It depends where we are when we raise. Um, I don't think we're going to raise till next year. That's why I don't know. Is it five percent? Is it ten percent? Like I, I. Well, you said pretty would, definitively, it's not going to be thirty, and it'll be below ten. It's, it's definitely not going to be thirty. Um, All right, Chris. Very good. Let's wrap up here with the famous five quick answers. Number one, what's your favorite business book? Favorite business book? Um, I don't have one. What's the last book you read? Last book I read? Um, uh, right now, I'm trying to. I'm trying to work through um, the. Um, well, the last book I read was. I don't know. I think, uh, influencing friends. Uh, I don't know the, how to win friends and influence people. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? I mean, I like, I, I like to watch what's happening with Elon Musk. Cause it's just crazy. Interesting to see. Like there's just so much there. There's so much meat on that bone. You can like, yep. digest. number three, what is your favorite online tool for building your company? Favorite online tool? Google. Google search. Okay. Number four, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Seven. And what's your situation? Married, single, kiddos? Married. No kiddos yet? Oh, yeah, both. Married and with kids. Oh, good, good, good. How many? Out of curiosity. Three. Dudes, are, are they are they sortable, employable, employable yet or no? No. <laughs> All right. We're playing the long game there. And how old are you, Chris? Uh, 41. 41. Last question, Chris. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Um, I wish my 20-year-old self knew that um, somewhere in the world there's there's like mentors you can get at 
and um, you should go get at them. Guys, there you have it. Go find mentors faster. He had some success with Sortable, selling it early on to a larger company, Rebellion, backed by a private equity firm, then worked in 2014 to spin that back out and really scale it. Now they've got a model, which is essentially a SaaS tonnage fee on a CPM basis and then a rev share basis as well. Um, They've got 300 customers right now growing 30 to 40% year over year, doing well north of 3 million bucks in revenue. Net revenue retention annually over 100% with this team of about 60 people between Waterloo and Toronto. Uh, less than six month payback period too. So healthy economics there. Chris, thank you so much for taking us to the top. Thanks.